Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us tonight, this morning, wherever you are, for the launch of the 8th Latrobe Asia Brief Fresh Perspectives on the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. I'm Kate Clayton, a research officer at Latrobe Asia, and I'll be moderating tonight's panel. Tonight, I'm joining from Washington, D.C., but normally I'll be joining from Latrobe University Bundura campus in Melbourne, Australia. Thus, as is customary in Australia, I like to begin the event by acknowledging the traditional lands on which the Bandura campus sits on, the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and recognise their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. I'd also like to extend that acknowledgement to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are with us tonight. And given that this is an online event, I'd like to acknowledge the various lands on which we'll all join in from and feel free to use the chat box to share with us whose lands you're joining on from tonight. So today's event is a pretty special one as it sees the culmination of months of hard work from 16 fantastic emerging quad leaders from Australia, the United States, Japan and India. In November last year, Latrobe Asia, with support from the US Embassy Canberra, convened the Quadmin Emerging Leaders Dialogue in Melbourne. Over one week, 16 delegates met with Indo-Pacific experts to discuss all things Quad. As we head to the Quad Leaders meeting in Sydney later this month, just three weeks away now, ensuring that next generation leaders and their ideas are at the forefront of policy discussions is key to securing a future-ready and generationally sustainable Quad. On that, I'll now turn to our fantastic panellists who are all future quad leaders and fact leaders today. The panellists will speak on their respective papers and then we'll have a moderated Q&A and finally I'll open it up to the audience for a Q&A. If you've got a question, feel free to pop it in the Q&A box for us at the later end of this event. Tonight we're joined by Patrick Saunders, Humanitarian Services at Ames Australia, Abhishek Sharma from Pacific Forum and a PhD candidate at the University of Delhi, Eleanor Shiro-Hughes, a non-resident fellow at EconVu, and Afia Akand, research intern at the Australia Strategic Policy Institute. On that note, I'll now hand it over to Patrick, who'll be able to tell us more about his paper, the first paper in the Quadrilateral Fresh Perspective series. Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, as Kate said, I'm Patrick. I worked alongside Len Tran and Takari Okamoto uh, to make our paper on the Quad. Um, <clears throat> Our paper foregoes looking at any specific issue on the Quad uh, that it may face in favour of analysing the structure as a whole and its operability. Uh, we hope to lay a groundwork for the other groups to build upon, uh, taking into account the Quad's capabilities and its current challenges that it faces. Uh, we chose to begin our piece with a brief introduction um, with the history of the Quad, uh, paying both due regard to the events that led to its conception, but also to recognise the importance of values and ideals, such as human dignity, security, and a free region, and, and how those have played into binding the group's identity. <clears throat> Having established this background, we also covered how the group's purpose has evolved through time, uh, as new threats and challenges in the Indo-Pacific have developed beyond the capacity of any one state to effectively manage. <clears throat> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, it was important for us to emphasize the dilemma the Quad faces when engaging with the Indo-Pacific, uh, we wanted to demonstrate that while the narrative and motive exists from the perspective of each of the group's uh, members individually uh, to positively engage with the region, uh, joint quad exercise may not always be perceived as intended. We made a point of mentioning early in the brief that the perception of Asian and other Southeast Asian states towards the quad were, while often slightly favourable, still only just that, uh, drawing attention to the fact that although the quad may be accepted and welcomed as a partner, when confronting the region's issues, the relationship was more nuanced than that. Uh, many regional states maintain a tentative stance towards participation with the Quad, rationalised by concerns that, particularly from Beijing, this cooperation may be viewed provocatively. Uh, at a surface level, it is a choice of capitulating the region or, paradoxically, contributing to its insecurity through security projects. Uh, this damned if they do and damned if they don't dilemma for Quad was important for us to emphasise as it effectively demonstrates a number of functional changes that the group must take. Uh, whatever issues the Quad chooses to tackle, the value of narrative, plausible deniability and regional end endorsement cannot be underestimated. <coughs> uh, using the example of past efforts for Quad collaboration, we also aim to demonstrate at, uh, at an at-present lack of cohesion between the group's members. Specifically, we use the example of the promise to deliver vaccines during the COVID pandemic in Southeast Asia and its failure to deliver on the announced targets. 
We brought attention to this issue in particular because it emphasizes the impact such failures on the delivery of promised assistance can have on the group's perceived goodwill, drawing back to the importance of narratives and regional endorsement for the Quad's success. Uh, there is little sense in the group pursuing a softer approach to influence in the region if the projects they aspire to deliver are haphazardly organized and underdelivered. Um, <clears throat> as such, our recommendations for what the Quad could do moving into the future emphasize these points and correcting these weaknesses. We emphasize the importance of projects that are designed with public good at their center, using the Indo-Pacific Partnership for Maritime Domain Awareness as an example. Uh, these kinds of projects keep the Quad involved in the region, provide a strong narrative for their continued involvement, and provide realistic, tempered solutions to regional disputes. With the objective of increasing interoperability and developing a better recognition of each partner's capabilities, we also recognized or encouraged a broadening of exchange programs between states, going as far to suggest an expansion of the 2 plus 2 ministerial meeting platform to include relevant meet, uh, ministers for ongoing tasks. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for that one, Patrick. And Abhishek, I'll turn to you. Um, thanks, Kate. Uh, firstly, I would like to uh, thank my friends who contributed to the chapter, Jada, Kanji, and Charlotte. Um, our chapter has focused on the, <clears throat> on the maritime and cyber domain as they are too interlinked with the national security and economic prosperity of the court, and but also the other regional states. We have seen the last few years, but specifically after 2017, when the court took the rebirth, that security issues, uh, starting with maritime cybersecurity, have risen in the threat perception of the court members. The region um, is currently facing challenges, both in maritime domain as well as cyberspace. And the court has taken many steps to address the region challenges, uh, as we have elaborated in the chapter. Um, as I said before, security has been the main pillar of the Quad, particularly focusing on enhancing the capabilities and capacities of respective members in the region for mutual interest, but also providing help in form of public goods to the region. So, so we have started the paper with uh, focusing on maritime security, which is the first issue. Um, um, so maritime security challenges is just piracy, illegal, report, unreported and unregulated fishing, trafficking of people and illicit goods, and marine populations are some issues that we see in the region. And Quad shares the challenges, uh, which makes Madam Security Initiative a prime opportunity for bringing in the cooperative efforts uh, and also working with countries uh, to build legitimacy for the Quad and also adding comprehensive value to the region. The Quad members have contributed to the region non-traditional security initiative like Indo-Pacific Maritime uh, Domain Awareness, which has helped the regional countries in humanitarian assistance and com combating illegal fishing. Capacity building programs to ASEAN and Pacific Island states by Australia through PMSP, Japan via GIC and US through Safari Initiative have helped in providing concrete assistance. Um, moving ahead, uh, we see a shift from limited cooperation towards maritime security issues. In the last few years, we have seen regular naval exercises like Meraba and clear statement expressing concerns on the course of maritime activities threatening region states. Uh, and this signals an intent of the court to do more through initiatives. In Malabar 2022, the Quad Navy's conducted high-end tactical training, submarine integration, um, anti-submarine warfare training, and uh, maritime interdiction operations. Uh, this also shows that such acts, even being out of the Quad traditional framework, helps in easing interoperability, building strategic communication, and systematic trust, which can be eventually integrated if needed in the future. The second issue the paper has focused on uh, is the cybersecurity, which is vital in addressing the security of Quad members and the states due to the, its interlinkages with uh, security, economic, political, and strategic concerns. Uh, why it is important, more critical for Quad is due to the state's reliance on digital technologies to function and the increasing vulnerability from, from non-state and state actors in the region, uh, but particularly post-pandemic, which we have seen increasing cyber attacks, such as ransomware and malware. And Quad leaders have committed to an open, secure, stable, accessible, and peaceful cyberspace. So we have seen that the, to achieve this collective security, Quad states are encouraging further cooperation of information security, sharing, sorry, of key threat information and risks, um, standardization of security procedures, and using collective purchasing power to promote technological advancement uh, in software in, uh, development. Um, this is the area where the Quad and states continue to develop more uh, individual risk mitigation techniques in accordance with updated research and following suggestions by Quad working groups and external uh, intergovernmental organizations. Um, so we have seen Quad states have their respective regions work to increase the capacities uh, uh, of other countries like India is working with countries like Nepal, Bangladesh and Mongolia, but also with BIMSTEC grouping. So is Australia who's working uh, 
focusing on the Pacific region through Paxon. Similarly, Japan and US also cooperating with ASEAN to strengthen cybersecurity, uh, which is welcome development. Uh, we have seen quad cybersecurity partnership extend initiative like CRI, the counter ransom initiative in the region, which helps countries. So uh, recognizing these two challenges, we have given three recommendations, um, one focusing on the maritime security aspect and the other two on cybersecurity. The first one on maritime is focuses on enhancing maritime security. It suggests that the quad members should increase in capacity building and defense technology transfer to Southeast Asian Cayman states uh, to the South China Sea as an essential component of the Indo-Pacific maritime domain awareness. And the uh, second one is focusing the quad members uh, to expand on uh, existing mechanism in countering uh, new cyber crimes by working with South Asian states. And the last one uh, uh, focuses on need to establish partnerships in form of quad plus framework. Uh, uh, and engage with uh, Indo-Pacific states and regional groupings to create consensus on joint framework on cyber norms and rules. In conclusion, I'd say that uh, even though the Quad is not explicitly focused on the issues of security and has given much other areas much focus, uh, this should not be seen as a negative aspect, but rather a process that has brought more trust, ease and intent to work together between countries. Going forward, it is expected the region will likely to face more instability and <coughs> instability in the maritime subdomain. Uh, uh, we already see a rise in arm expenditures and going forward, we would uh, see that Quad may take steps that address these challenges. Uh, uh, today, Quad stands for a collective that aims to maintain a free and Indo-Pacific by working together with each other and countries in the region. Thank you. Thank you so much for that one, Abhishek. And as everyone will see throughout tonight, is the emphasis on public goods as a key delivery and what's kind of going to underpin the Quad in its future the most. On that, I'll now turn to Eleanor to tell us about their paper. Great. Thank you so much, Kate, and uh, happy to see so many people attending today's webinar. I'd first like to thank my co-author, Sasaki Rena, as well as Akash Kuglani for our policy brief. Uh, so we decided to write on the Quad strategic direction, which we believe we argue is geoeconomics and the space domain. Um, so digital connectivity and supply chain resilience are really turning into the bread and butter of the Indo-Pacific architecture, and it's a major engine for global economic growth and global economic opportunities. According to a World Economic Forum report from last year, over 60% of global GDP relied on digital technologies. So I think the Quad is maintaining that trend as well. In our policy memo, our, my co-authors and I underline the reality that there are times when states exploit regional economic integration by taking advantage of supply chain choke points or ones that have yet to be anticipated by, for example, utilizing economic coercion to undermine a state's ability to facilitate economic exchanges. Um, we've, as we've seen since COVID-19, we've seen the great importance of semiconductors, the very small chips that drive or enable us to communicate in the ways that we do. They are in our cell phones, in our cars, and a lot of other electronic devices. Um, and with that in mind, that's why the Quad Leadership Statement from the Leadership Summit that took place in Tokyo last May confirmed the launching of a semiconductor supply network, as well as a common uh, principles on critical technology supply chains. But the one thing that we should watch out for is to make sure the supply chain security doesn't entail use of tools that encourage protectionism, because that could then fall into issues, issues that relate to the World Trade Organization or that would entail their involvement to settle disputes. In our next section, we wrote briefly about digital public goods. So in this day and age, one quagmire that digital platforms, both big and small, but of which we listed like Apple, Microsoft, and other firms are facing is that there are deficiencies in interoperability. There are also degrees of ambiguity regarding the credibility of algorithms, as well as data security concerns from consumers themselves. That is why the Quad countries are working in concert with each other to ensure that standard making is featured more prominently in Quad dialogues, as well as concrete deliverables and cooperation on supply chain resiliency, as I mentioned earlier, those things put together can build more equitable economies, not just among Quad countries, but those that are recipients of the public goods that Kate mentioned earlier, as well as economies that so that it also enable corporations and other firms to have a level playing field for other tech firms. 
Finally, we wrote on the space domain. Um, it is a domain, uh, as I like to say, that has unrealized potential. And over the last few years, the quad countries are really starting to capitalize on this new and exciting frontier. I can tell you from personal experience as someone, I attended um, the Goddard Space Center um, in Maryland a few weeks ago, and they are ripe with international cooperation. And I think that's a promising frontier for the quad. That's why in September 2021, the space made an appearance for the first time in a joint statement from a quad leadership summit. The quad leaders, I believe, and stewards also recognize that working closely together on space governance issues can enable quad countries to work together so that satellite data can track issues that relate to climate, such as tracking how much water is underground by use of gravity, anticipating future weather anomalies and years in advance, and addressing issues relating to maritime domain awareness, such as through and being able to track illegal fishing. With this in mind, I think there's a greater demand signal from private sector to pursue commercial activities to ensure that space is a domain that could be shared and not monopolized. So some of the few recommendations that we listed in our brief is to pit one, number one, to pinpoint ident uh, opportunities where the quad can foster cooperation on gaining access to emerging and critical technologies so that they can be used as digital public goods. Second, to foster development of open source and public rails such as e-commerce and other payment systems so that the um, digital connectivity can be more equitable for all stakeholders. Finally, ensuring that space governance agenda doesn't entail uh, just use of space by governments or quad governments, but also private uh, sector as well, because without their um, ability to participate in this domain, nothing can really happen in terms of the quad working in concert, quad actors working in concert with each other to make space a more inclusive and open domain. Uh, I end there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Eleanor. I like your point about it being an inclusive debate as well for the quad. And to finish us off, I'll turn to you, Apia. Thanks so much, Kate, and thank you so much to my fellow Quadman delegates, Patrick Albershek and Elnor, for sharing your own insights on your policy briefs. So it's a pleasure to be here today virtually and to have the opportunity to share some of the key points from the policy brief that I co-authored along with Aditi Mukon, Lily Scheiman, and Mana Takahashi. So through our brief, we focused on why it's important for the Quad to further human security lens to its work, and we also provided two recommendations on how the Quad can achieve this human security agenda. So by way of providing some context, conceptualizing the role of the Quad through a human security lens is admittedly a departure from the hard security concerns that the Quad has traditionally engaged with. For example, the Quad is often associated with maritime exercises such as Malabar, which Abhishek talked about, and also with building military interoperability between the Quad defense forces. Having said that, human security issues equally have a key place within the work of the Quad, and in fact, the creation of the Quad can be traced back to a human security issue in the form of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, where the Quad countries came together to provide humanitarian aid and disaster relief in the region. Therefore, these types of transnational issues, whether they be natural disasters, climate change or legal fishing, clearly require a joint response by multilateral groupings in the region. So another reason why the Quad's engagement with human security is important is due to the interaction between human security and heart security concerns. While societal issues in Indo-Pacific countries such as weak governments, access to basic infrastructure and resources are often seen to be developmental issues, state fragility can lead to increased likelihood of violence, as seen through the 2021 Honiara riots in the Solomon Islands. And fragile states can also be vulnerable to external co coercion, as seen through increasing concerns of CCP influence in the Pacific Islands over the past few years. A different way to also think about that interaction between human security and hard security can be seen through the issue of climate change, which our um, policy paper talks a lot about. Climate-induced effects, such as rising sea levels, can in fact lead to and exacerbate hard security issues, such as conflict over scarce land and resources. So noting some of these human security concerns that I've just outlined, in the past few years, the Quad has started to conceptualise human security as a lens through which it needs to act. For example, the Quad has delivered COVID-19 vaccines to Southeast Asia, whether or not that was effective is another question, but it is something they did do. Um, and also the Quad has obviously invested within HADR projects in the region. So for the Quad to continue to strengthen its human security narrative, our group first recommended that the Quad needs to mainstream, mainstream a human security lens within its existing initiatives, especially when it comes to climate change and gender issues. On the issue of climate, already the Quad is acting through means such as QCHAMP, the Quad Climate Change Adaptation and Mitigation Package, as well as the Climate and Information Service Task Force. 
So regarding the task force, it's focused on improving information sharing relating to the occurrence of climate-induced natural disasters in the region. However, what's currently missing, at least from publicly available information about the pod, is impacts and information about the human dimension of climate change. For example, what I think would be effective would be if the Quad collated information about the nature and prevalence of climate-induced migration, which would ensure that the Quad is proactively responding to this human side of climate, which will only become worse with the coming decades. Mainstreaming human security lens can also be achieved by better integrating a gendered perspective. So while the Quad has started to consider gender with respect to infrastructure projects and HADR, Gender inclusion needs to also be incorporated within quad decision-making, including working groups and task forces. This includes incorporating the perspective of women who have lived experience with respect to the policy issues that the quad is engaging with. Our second recommendation in our policy brief related to provision of collective aid in the Indo-Pacific. Due to that nexus between human security and hard security that I briefly outlined, aid should be continued to be provided to states that are facing developmental issues within our region. But rather than the Quad using aid as a way to further geopolitical agendas, aid should be tailored in a way that responds to the need of aid recipients. For example, one beneficial program endorsed by the Quad is the Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure, which is a global partnership for building resilience into infrastructure systems within the region. So in closing, the Quad can easily build on existing initiatives relating to gender, climate and aid as a way to better integrate human security lens to its work. By acting on these types of joint human security concerns, the Quad will therefore be able to consolidate its regional legitimacy. Thanks so much, and I'll hand back to Kate. Thank you so much for that one, Afi, and thank you to all of our speakers. We've got the kind of full realm of Quad security in terms of the hard security, the smart security, and as well as the human security. So we've got really good perspectives here. To kick us off for a moderated Q&A, Abhishek, I'll start with you. So your paper looks at maritime security and cyber as a means to enhance grey zone resilience and grey zone coercion in the region. How do you see these maritime and cyber issues as interlinked? Uh, thanks for the question, Kate. Uh, if you look at the Indo-Pacific region and the role of what, what stands out are two things. The first, uh, to work together to enhance the overall security, maintain stability and prosperity of the region. And the second is to focus uh, on giving a choice and alternative to the like-minded countries in the region. And both maritime and cyber issues uh, threaten the security and prosperity of the states in the region. Hence, we see challenges that uh, that are the same, not in specific, but in character. Uh, maritime and cyber domains are linked to national security, economic prosperity, and regional stability. So ensuring that the maritime domain is secured and the states in the region can exercise the rights in open seas is something we also see uh, in parallel to the cyber domain, where the risk and vulnerabilities exist from states and non-state actors. And here, Quad upholds the rule-based international order in maritime and cyberspace to keep it free, open, inclusive, and accessible to all countries uh, following human rights and constitutional democratic principles. Uh, and to it basically stress on keeping the internet free and secure, as well as sealing of communication, open for all, is the way forward that uh, for the countries in the region, that's how the Quad members would see this. And that's how I, see, I also see that the linkages um, exist between both maritime and cyberspace domain. Perfect, thank you so much for that one. So expanding out from the role and looking at tech a little bit more as developing public goods for the region, Eleanor, would you be able to tell us about the role of the commercial sector in helping the Quad deliver its goods? Sure, I'm happy to do so. Um, thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think until recently, um, you know, I live in DC and oftentimes, you know, policy makers dominate the conversations. But I think, you know, more recently with COVID-19 and supply chain bottlenecks, et cetera, um, we can't really um, buy for, I don't think it's good um, or it's in our interests or the Quad country's interests to bifurcate policy-specific issues and business-specific issues and interests. And that's one of the reasons why I was kind of excited to write about uh, the geoeconomics um, and the space domain as well. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, the Quad can't really do any of the deliverables that it's committing to make without input from the private sector. That's just a matter of fact. And that's not just necessarily private sector from India or Australia. It's all four countries put together. And sometimes perhaps additional 
um, input from other non-quad member countries because, of, you know, supply chains are quite extensive. You know, from what I, if I remember correctly, I think it takes for, to build an F-35, for example, the supply chains uh, in eight different countries, if I remember correctly. Um, I'll have to look that up later. But th that's as an example, you know, and there are other things such as the Quad Fellowship, of which I'm a big fan of, um, that would, um, that um, allows a hundred um, young, promising STEM uh, students at the graduate level from all four quad countries to pursue studies um, in the United States. That is primarily administered by Schmidt Futures, uh, which is um, run by former Google CEO. And there's uh, and that's also financed by entities such as, like I said, Google, um, MasterCard, Blackstone, among others. Um, so I think at the end of the day, I think, you know, going forward, as we have more quad related consortiums or conversations at the next gen level, I do think that we should have more input from people who are deeply entrenched into the private sector. Um, I hope that it was a good answer. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Eleanor. Turning to you, Afia, and looking at human security, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about how human security manifests in the quad? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Kate. So from how I see it, not only are human security concerns um, having a flow on effects for quad countries, such as climate-induced migration and um, the impacts of climate change, but human security is also a domestic concern for the quad itself. And therefore, quad countries have a vested interest to combat these issues through multilateral cooperation. Um, so to provide an illustrative example, I'll talk about my own perspective as an Australian. Um, I grew up in Newcastle, which is a seaside city, large port, and it's home to a lot of coal mines. And actually, the port of Newcastle is known for being one of the biggest um, exporters of coal in the world today. So while exporting coal has led to significant economic benefit for Australia, we all know that fossil fuels have had the effect of worsening the climate crisis. And we've seen that manifest in the Australian context through the frequency and severity of bushfires in Australia, such as the 2019-2020 bushfires, which were in part caused due to climate change. So in this way, human security issues such as climate-induced disasters are not just being experienced by developing countries in the region, such as in South Asia or the Pacific Islands, but these are issues that quad countries like Australia are increasingly being confronted by. As a result, it's clear that countries like Australia have the best in interest in combating these challenges proactively. So for example, the um, Defence Strategic Review from the Australian government was released last week and identifies that combating the climate crisis is a priority as part of Australia's national defence. Due to the vast joint resources and capabilities of the quad, whether that's through deploying defence capabilities for HADR or through proactively coming up with strategies to combat climate-induced migration and to adapt to that um, challenge, this is why these four countries can work together and assist each other in furthering human security initiatives. Thank you so much for that one and about the importance of climate change, not just affecting those in the Pacific, but it's affecting all of us today. So, Patrick, the big summit question. So it's recently been announced, as we all know, of the Quad Sydney Summit on March 24th. Patrick, what do you foresee as some of the key topics for this meeting and how do you think Albanese might put a kind of uniquely Australian flavour for the summit? Um, I wish I had the kind of connections to have an actual idea of what's going on or what might be talked about, uh, but to give my best guess, applying what we've learned about the Quad's challenges. Uh, I'd imagine much of the discussion may revolve around management of tensions and how best to achieve uh, some sense of peaceful cohabitation or at least peaceful sense of competition in the region. Uh, I think economics, from at least the perspective of an Australian, is going to play a pretty big, um, pretty significant factor in this discussion. Uh, riding off of the back of some success the Australian government has had in recent months in negotiation with China over the punitive tariffs that were placed uh, in 2020, April, um, as a, well, at least what was mostly recognised as a response to the independent review into the origins of the coronavirus, um, and particularly uh, the recent more uh, steps forward have come around the sort of tariffs on Bali. And maybe I think that that might inject some sort of enthusiasm from the Australian delegation uh, about some sort of optimism uh, into the discussion about how we can better cooperate with China or at least sort of um, manage the relationship, uh, given much of the region is still recovering from the pandemic, combined with the harrowing reminders of what contemporary conflict looks like coming from Ukraine. I think both member states of the Quad and regional stakeholders are very opt or hoping for a discussion that emphasises economic development and human security, like we've been talking about here today, rather than power politics and competition. 
of course, you can make the argument that heightened awareness of potential for conflict could push discussion the other way, uh, but I'm more hopeful of cooler heads. Thank you so much for that one, Patrick. I just want to remind everyone in the audience as well that you can use the Q&A function to ask any questions for our panellists on the Quad and Indo-Pacific security more broadly. One question from me, and we'll answer it in the same order that you all spoke in. What do you think the role of next generation leadership is in the Quad? And why are young people important for the sustainability of the Quad? All right, Patrick, we'll kick off with you. Um, I think it's almost hard to overstate how important it is to have the youth involved, not to sound arrogant or anything, I think. Um, we've got very unique perspectives. I think uh, just, again, speaking from an Australian stance here, from an Australian perspective, it's hard to not recognise the, at least domestically, generational differences in our attitudes towards domestic politics, but that also extends outwards. Um, you know, our perceptions of China, of Russia, of the United States are different to that of our parents. And having us involved in the conversation and understanding the impact that these relationships have at the international and domestic level, you know, in our own lives is um, important for developing these alliances moving forward into the future, but also for making sure that they deliver on what it is that the youth needs today. Yeah, Abhishek? Um, I would like to agree with what Patrick said, but uh, to add uh, another point that uh, I think uh, diplomacy and initiative that the Quad aims to achieve uh, cannot be fulfilled without the participation of young people and particularly uh, youth who not only on in the policymaking space, but also across, as uh, Elena mentioned, across other domains like education institution, academia, think tank, um, uh, private sector, which is a major part of Quad, all initiatives. So, and also being uh, the being the largest demographics across all states, court state, it makes sense to involve them to also make, have a consistency in the policy approach so that even when the administration changes, there are people who have uh, those stake, those stakeholders remains the same and they can they continue to take forward the policies. Thanks so much for that one. And we'll go to Eleanor. Sure. So um, I think, you know, in order to ensure the longevity of the quad, I think there needs to be political stamina that needs to be maintained in all four countries. You know, when we had the first leadership summit um, in September 2021, um, two out of the four leaders are no longer in office. And that would be um, Prime Minister Suga from Japan and uh, Prime Minister Morrison from Australia. Um, and, you know, next year um, in the United States, we will have a very uh, consequential election, although I think I like to think that every presidential election is consequential, whether it's an incumbent in office rerunning or not. Um, but either way, right now, I don't foresee, you know, um, any sort of, um, you know, either political party, the Republicans or Democrats saying, you know, the the, the Indo-Pacific is our priority region. Um, of course, there is Ukraine as well. But at the same time, you know, over time, as there, you know, our country, our four countries play, uh, have political constraints or restraints, as well as that of other stakeholders who are involved in shaping our re the Indo-Pacific region, I think is important and also incumbent on young leaders such as um, ourselves, hopefully, um, to ensure that the Quad is, in fact, you know, able to deliver on the commitments, because ultimately the deliverables that are placed in the joint statements now, we are going to feel the impacts of those deliverables in, for years to come and for or even decades to come. All right. Thank you so much for that one, everyone. So we've got a couple of questions through come through. So thank you so much, everyone. Keep them coming as well. So I'll start off, we've got two questions about maritime security, and I know each of you have different various expertise in maritime security, so feel free to take the little bits out of the question that interests you the most to answer. So from Troy Lee Brown, one of our quad main panellists, so we've got what announcements can we expect in Sydney later this month regarding the quads IPMDA, or what would maritime states in the Indo-Pacific region hope will be announced regarding the IMPD? So the difference between what the Quad will announce and perhaps what the region's looking for from the Quad. And going off from regional perspectives, we've got Melissa Conley-Tyler, a fellow Quad, panel, quad main panellist as well. So she's interested in the Quad's Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative. It's an area where there's a clear public good, i.e. combining illegal fishing, but it's a complex arena where there are already Pacific, Southeast Asian and Indian Ocean regional efforts underway. Do you have any insights on how the Quad is working with other initiatives in the region? So kind of inter 
multilateral and minilateral engagement. So I'll hand it over to anyone to kick us off and you can pull out any small or large themes within the questions as well. On the maritime domain awareness, it's not my expertise, but uh, I've written the paper with my fellow colleagues. So I can say that uh, we have um, one of the points which was mentioned is the uh, the criticality of three regions in the maritime domain awareness, Indian Ocean, the South China Sea and the Pacific. Uh, so uh, that was uh, one thing which Quad in its last Tokyo summit mentioned that they would need to extend support, for example, on issues of information sharing across these regions. And one thing which we have um, given recommendations on is that to, to give more agency to specific regions and uh, to collab uh, to focus on collaborative efforts with uh, regional states like uh, um, India can work more closely with uh, Indian Ocean regions, uh, regional states like uh, Mauritius or Sri Lanka and <clears throat> Seychelles. Uh, similarly, uh, the countries like uh, Australia can work more closely with Pacific Island states. Uh, and this may this will also uh, lessen the burden on quad states particularly and give more agency to the regional states and so that they can work out to this. Yeah. Did anyone else want to jump in about the regional aspects of the IPMDA? I can quickly say something, which is that I'm not entirely sure, I'm, you know, IPMDA is also not my area of expertise by any means, but, you know, I think more recently from the U.S. side, there's been a lot more momentum on maritime related issues. Um, like, you know, this week we or just yesterday we had President uh, Marcos from the Philippines um, visit the White House. And I think if there's any more movement from a maritime standpoint, I my suspicion is that it might be more on a bilateral or trilateral basis. I'm not because, you know, I think. One thing that we should keep in mind when it comes to all these different initiatives is, you know, there's also overlapping um, uh, initiatives with other frameworks, whether it be um, like the bilateral, trilateral or AUKUS, et cetera. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that these policymakers and other stakeholders should keep in mind is how to have all these initiatives without diluting a, another initiative that is part already part of another um, framework, if, if that makes sense. So that's why I'm not entirely sure to what extent that IPM will be featured prominently um, in the uh, upcoming dialogue. Thank you so much for that one, everyone. So we've got a question here from Yoon Jang. So there's a perception that the Quad was formed to contain or to counter China. Do any of you think that the Quad would cooperate with China on issues such as climate change? So Arthur, if you wanted to address that one, um, or as well as technology, Eleanor and Albuchek. Um, so potential Quad China collaboration. Um, I'm happy to talk about the climate aspect of it. So I think it's a question rather than would or could the Quad cooperate with China, it's that the Quad should cooperate when it comes to issues like climate. Whether it could, that's another issue because obviously um, the Quad has been perceived to actually just increase um, security dilemmas in the region and, and it has been so securitized that I think it's at the point where it's quite difficult to lead to meaningful engagement with China. Um, from the climate issue, however, definitely should engage with countries such as China who are increasing in terms of their emission um, emission production. So we saw that the IPCC report that was released in March, it highlighted that global temperatures are on track to rise to by 3.2 degrees by 2100. And that if we want to reverse the irreversible re effects of climate change, warming needs to be kept within 1.5 degrees. So obviously it requires an approach that isn't just the quad countries engaging in the region, but every single country in our region to deal with that. And one of the other side effects and one of the flow on impacts as well of the climate crisis is this climate induced migration that I mentioned. The, um, one of the Australian think tanks, the Institute for Economics and Peace, highlighted that um, by 2050, there could be 1.2 billion people displaced by climate related events. So obviously that is a complex problem, and I think that's why its strategic narrative, which Patrick's group highlighted, is something really important that the Quad needs to um, really focus on. It's about delivering public goods for the region rather than just being a tool of geopolitical competition. I'm happy to weigh in on the technology aspect. Um, and I think Afi, I and Patrick both made very good points about the narrative because, you know, um, I mentioned it, uh, when I spoke for Latrobe last year in Melbourne that, um, you know, China is projecting a narrative that the quad is a destabilizing factor. Um, so I think another important aspect that we should think about when it comes to China and the Quad is would China also want to work in concert with the Quad on these uh, said issues? Because it's one thing for the, the Quad countries to want to perhaps work with China on 
climate or other transnational issues and causes, but would China reciprocate? I think that's one important thing that we should consider um, or think about um, over the, for the next uh, for the years to come. When it comes to technology, I think the difficulty in that is increasingly um, technology has been used um, for military applications. And I think that, you know, not just because of the strategic competition with the United States and um, between the United States and China, but I think other countries are also aware of that reality as well. And I think China is definitely aiming to be more self-sufficient in these cutting edge technologies. That is why it has its Made in China 2025 initiative and a, a host of other initiatives um, of which I can't, um, I cannot remember to name all right now. But um, so I think in that regard, um, safeguarding technologies is of critical importance to the quad countries. And I think private sector also has its own hesitations when it comes to facilitating technology transfers, because it could be construed as enabling China's own technological endeavors that could perhaps what that has that entails use of a military use. So my for right now, I'm very skeptical about working in concert with China Big for technology, especially if it's dual use. Chuck, if you wanted to jump in with any thoughts about the broader narrative of the Quad and how might that play in regards to China? Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. Eleanor and Afi have done a great job of sort of already emphasising the importance of that narrative. Um, and Afi, excellent. I think absolutely right. Like whether or not they should, and they could. Um, absolutely, the Quad should eventually uh, be targeting cooperation with China. It, if we look at the broader goal, it's to bring China into alignment with um, you know, a rules-based order, right? To have them be a, a fair player and to be involved in international markets and uh, the security framework as somebody who's not contributing to destabilization, but a player. So eventually it's something that has to inevitably, inevitably be a goal of the Quad, um, just whether or not like Eleanor says, it can happen right now, particularly in the technology sphere, is perhaps a, a lot harder discussion to open up, yeah. We've got a question here from Christian Wells. So what challenges could the Biden administration's autocracy versus democracy narrative pose for India's role in the Quad and the Modi government as it's perceived as becoming more authoritarian? And has Indonesia's, not Indonesia's, India's refusal to follow the Quad partners in line on Ukraine potentially created some friction within the group in. So Abhishek, did you want to begin us with that one? Um, I would say that, uh, of course, uh, <clears throat> Quad is based on shared values of human rights and democratic principles. And um, that is something that uh, I would say that every country uh, is particularly uh, cognitive about to ensure that uh, it's not just a head of states speaking to each other's, but also the civil society and broader framework kind of interacting uh, to um, attain the initiative which they uh, talks about. Um, but uh, one, uh, but this uh, the narrative of the, uh, the authoritarian versus uh, democracies particularly don't find resonance in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, especially when you talk about South East Asian states, be it uh, Singapore. Recently, Singapore held a military exercise with China. Similarly, many other countries also do is um, so. I think to to Quad's aim is to uh, get more countries uh, in its initiative to like um, work together. And this kind of narrative doesn't help much because it kind of brackets countries uh, and labeling uh, is is the most easiest way in diplomacy uh, to not uh, to to just kind of uh, not engage. And one of the approach of India is in Quad is to engage more and more, but not entangle. So. Uh, so that is one thing I would I like to mention, but also on the Ukraine crisis, I would say that India's stance has uh, uh, subsequently uh, and slowly uh, progressed. Um, so if we look in UN Security Council resolutions, also the uh, most people just focuses on the voting, but not on the statement that India has given. Um, but even on the court statement, which uh, which was um, the, la the this year the minister statement, it talks about uh, and I quote that. Uh, we underscore the need for a comprehensive, just and lasting peace in Ukraine in accordance with international law, including the UN Charter. And we emphasize the rules-based international order must respect sovereignty, integrity, transparency, and peaceful resolution dispute. So India has uh, been able, has been uh, very, uh, very firm in, in its stand, um, not to, uh, for example, because India has a principal position not to follow any particularly targeted um, sanctions uh, apart from UN. 
so that has been uh, something uh, which is often mis- misleading, uh, uh, which is seen as misleading by uh, uh, by many commentators and people. Uh, so I, I would say that yes, quad um, uh, countries can work together more closely on issues of Ukraine, um, uh, but uh, still we have seen some progress in, on this aspect. It's okay to add a comment. I mean, I think one thing I read recently is that India's population has surpassed that of China. And I think that is a major deal. I think it's a big deal when we think about the context of the quad and, you know, who are the recipients of these public goods. And I think India is, you know, increasingly playing a bigger role in shaping the region across the spectrum. And I think we need to, you know, as quad members or non-quad members who are interested in quad related initiatives, we uh, need to help and, you know, we need to enable India to build capacity, whether it be in the maritime domain, whether it be in the technological sphere, you know, uh, recently, also Apple just opened its first store in India. Uh, you know, one thing I wonder is, will there be more Apple stores in years to come? And I think so. I think it, you know, the onus is on us to ensure that you know all four countries are able to build capacity um, in ways that enable the Quad to deliver these public goods. And to also, like you know, one of the I can't remember which panelist said earlier, but you know, never forget the origins, the story behind why Quad 1.0 was created was because of out of you know managing a crisis which was the boxing day 2004 tsunami so i think increasingly with the demographic aspect in mind as well um in india um and changing demographics across the indo-pacific region um we need to keep in mind that um india is going to be more critical for that as a reason as a quad nation as well as um a country shaping the indo-pacific more broadly also to add one more point that uh, often this this fact is not acknowledged in uh, most of Western discourse that India is the only country right now which is in standoff with PLA in Himalayas, and since the May 2020, and we have there there's around 50,000 soldiers which is standing face to face to PLA, and we we have own, our own issues with China, and we are trying to resolve that, uh, but <clears throat> that doesn't deter India to work closely with the, our partners in Pacific and across Pacific. Yeah, definitely. I think it's often forgotten that India does have those land border disputes with China as well in these broader geostrategic discussions. Um, Just a reminder to everyone as well, if you've got any questions, pop it in the Q&A tab. But for this one, we'll turn to you, Afia. So you've done a lot of work on multiculturalism in the region and in security. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how that might pertain to the Quad. Yeah, sure. That's an excellent question. And actually talking on the point about India's increasing democratic backsliding and authoritarianism, obviously India's own issues regarding its um, treatment of Muslim minorities, that's definitely an issue that Quad countries, um, it's not just an issue isolated to India or particular countries in the region, but every country in the Indo-Pacific region has these issues relating to multiculturalism and incorporating the perspective of minorities within decision-making. Um, obviously, from an Australian perspective, the rhetoric is that we're one of the most multicultural countries in the world and we have over 200 or 300 ancestries reflected. But whether that's actually incorporated within decision making is another issue. I think one of the big issues often perceived from groupings like Quad and also the AUKUS is that it seemed to be um, a neo-imperial um, sort of um, mechanism that's used to assert democracy and used to bully the rest of the region and not really caring about all of these other countries that have gone through very terrible um, consequences of colonialism and gone through those um, processes in the past. So for the Quad to better engage with the region, I think that's where especially diaspora communities as well can be used, whether that's about using Pacific diasporas in Pacific island regions, um, using Asian diasporas within countries in South Asia and so on to engage more robustly. So one of the issues that um, my group looked at within our policy brief was around the gender perspective of that. So looking at having that gender perspective entrenched within decision-making and policy-making within the quad, but often um, the multicultural perspective as well, that should also be equally um, incorporated to ensure there is that intersectionality in policy-making. So while it isn't necessarily an issue that the quad has engaged with in terms of that um, piece around diverse representation in quad leadership, it is something that needs to be kept in mind to ensure that the policy is being made a fit for purpose and also that's ensure that these diverse voices are reflected within decision-making. 
Thank you for that one. We've had a question come through about South Korea as a potential partner for the quad. So Afia and Abhishek, I know you're experts in Korea hands. So I was wondering if you could offer some insights into the potential of South Korea in joining the quad. And then Eleanor or Patrick, if you have any other ideas or wanted to discuss other states potentially joining the quad as well. This is a very good question because I've, I've uh, just written a piece for South Korea Pro on this. Um, but uh, the answer is no, uh, because I think yesterday only the uh, US, uh, one of the spokesperson US said that they are not planning to expand Quad for now. But um, I would say that this is not, um, countries in the region should not look at, uh, this is an exclusive club membership, but rather as a platform where countries can work together, cooperate on issues, because Quad has working group mechanisms and for uh, on issues like climate change, uh, cyber security. So if uh, many countries like South Korea has expressed its intent to work with uh, Quad on particularly uh, on uh, working groups, uh, especially in cyber security and um, climate change. So that that can be one way forward for uh, uh, like country like South Korea to go forward and work with countries in the region. But I would also say that uh, this Quad is not just uh, four countries where four countries coming together and um, uh, kind of forming initiatives, but uh, they, these all countries also engage at other levels, as Elena mentioned, bilateral, trilateral levels. So that is also all of these kind of uh, frameworks fit in together and make this make Quad more um, a better way to address the issues of Indo-Pacific uh, because the region is very dynamic. Uh, it has very various perspectives. So to have a very rigid structure doesn't help the region. So Quad helps in this perspective where a more flexibility uh, in bilateral, so for some issues may not 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 find consensus in court. That may those issues may find consensus bilaterally or bilateral. So that is one way that countries can work together with court. I'd also like to just add on to Abhishek's answer. So yes, I do agree that it'd be very difficult to have Korea as a formal member of the Quad. Um, just like India, Korea has its own geopolitical issues that it has. Obviously, as China, um, as a very close neighbor, it's economically quite dependent on China. But then it also has this massive U.S. military um, presence within the Korean Peninsula region to deal with, um, yeah, aggressions from North Korea. So South Korea, just like a lot of other countries, are engaging in this balancing act between a wide range of partners. So I think under the previous Moon administration, there was definitely a lot of reticence to provide an answer or to be very forward-leaning when it comes to this concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific region. The closest, I believe, that came was in terms of somewhat aligning the Moon administration's new sovereign policy um, with free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, but in that regard, it was mainly economic cooperation about how the US and South Korea can cooperate within the Indo-Pacific region. I think there is a bit more um, forward-leaningness with the current UN administration um, appointed last year in May in terms of cooperating closer with the Quad, but whether that's actually um, in terms of formally joining the Quad, I don't think that's going to occur. But obviously, South Korea has very similar um, values, being a democracy and wanting to achieve a lot of the same aims in terms of countering um, adversaries within the region. So. I don't think it'll be a formal joining of the quad, but informally, um, definitely South Korea is a very valued um, partner for countries like Australia and the US. I can add on to um, what Afia said about, you know, previous administration, Moon, I'm sorry, administration versus the UN administration is that, you know, like Afia said, you know, President Moon Jae-in, um, you know, towards the end of his tenure, if I remember correctly, he formally submitted Korea's application for the CPTPP, um, and I believe it is still pending. Um, but President Yoon, he even when he was on the campaign trail, he expressed his interest in um, having South Korea join as the Quad. But he had to walk back on those comments. Um, but, you know, now that he's in office, you know, since then, um, South Korea uh, published its Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, it has basically labeled itself like a global pivotal state. And it has actually what was eye catching to me when I read that strategy was a Quad mention and that, you know, South Korea does have a political desire to be involved in the Quad in some way. As Ab Abhishek mentioned um, yesterday, the White House uh, press secretary did say that, you know, right now there is no room for um, adding additional members to the quad. But at the same time, I actually asked this question when I went to a think tank event a few weeks ago in DC. And you know, the person who answered the question, you know, can South Korea be involved in the quad said, well, 
you know, he couldn't imagine South Korea or sorry, you know, the quad working or any countries working on supply chain resilience, global health without South Korea, because South Korea is a huge value add. I think as Afia mentioned in these endeavors, whether it's vaccines, whether it be semiconductor chips, you know, South Korea is, you know, wanting to become a bigger player in the economic domain, especially. So I, I don't think we should rule out the possibility that South Korea can be involved in some way, whether it be working groups on these transnational issues. And, and I think that would include climate as well. Um, but as a formal member, I don't really see consensus from all four uh, member states um, for in the near future, at least. Um, yeah, I pretty much all on top of Avashek's assessment. I don't think there's that space. I think everybody else has also said that too. It's just not really something that I feel when the court is already, uh, I think, going through a developing phase, through a growth phase at the moment, where it's still learning to work with the four members that it has, um, but there's just not that space for an additional voice. And um, that's not to say that there couldn't be um, expanded you know, opportunities for outreach. Uh, each of the countries obviously still have their own autonomy. They can still engage in negotiation. Um, Australia has strategic partnership with ASEAN, for example, um, one of the few countries that does uh, with the organization as a whole. There's opportunities there for engagement with Thailand, with Indonesia. Uh, the ongoing crisis in Myanmar presents a great opportunity for cooperation between Thailand, India and Australia, as well as the United States and Japan as you know logistical uh, support. So there's definitely space there where even if there's not uh, we don't go that, that far step ahead of bringing people into the quad. There's definitely space for the quad to develop relationships whilst it still learns to work amongst itself. I think that's a really good point, Patrick, about the quad learning to engage with quad members, but also alongside engaging with the region. So you flag Southeast Asia and something that we've spoken about briefly at Quadmin as well was the importance of South Asia in the broader Indo-Pacific. Afia, did you want to talk to us? I know you've done some work with ASPI on South Asia as well and how that fits into the Indo-Pacific. Again, something that's often forgotten. Much of the focus is on Southeast Asia or even Northeast Asia. Yeah, sure. I, I suppose from the Indian perspective, from what I've researched so far, is that there is this real commitment um, and real willingness to continue investment in critical and emerging technologies um, so um, India has a partnership with um, the US, the ICET. Um, with Australia, there's the ICTTPE, which is Cyber and Technology Partnership Exchange Program. So these sorts of mechanisms show India's willingness to build up technology as a way for cooperating with the region. Um, definitely, I think climate is, a, is an area that India hasn't really been focusing on in terms of its technological exchanges because it seems to be more so engaging in these critical and emerging technologies, uh, building Indian industry um, through Made in India and other mechanisms to bring domestic production to Indian shores. But in terms of how India can engage more broadly with the Indo-Pacific, um, whether that is through cooperating with countries such as South Korea or the US in these sorts of issues such as um, green energy and, and clean hydrogen and developing those technologies, I think is a really fantastic way for India to show its commitment to these joint issues within the region. To finish us off, we've got a great question here from Carl on the purpose of the quad. So I'm going to open this up to all of you to jump in at any point to close us off. But what do we think of the quad as a dialogue started about cooperation and how important is it to have this kind of dialogue structure as opposed to just having foreign ministers, foreign ministers meet in perhaps a more informal four-way discussion way? So what's the importance of having this quad as opposed to foreign leaders just meeting? I can start. I think there's something about presidents or prime ministers, I guess, um, meeting that carries more weight inherently than foreign ministers. Um, that's point number one. And I think point number two, you know, we talk about the quad oftentimes within the context of like what policymakers and C-suite executives and other um, seasoned thought leaders think about that what the direction of the Indo-Pacific should look like. But when you have presidential or prime minister leadership talking about the quad, it's a way in which, you know, it kind of, you know, enables what they're talking, the quad related initiatives to permeate each country's respective um, publics, general publics. So that's why, you know, when President Biden goes to um, Australia for the upcoming quad uh, leadership summit, um, he will also have got, just been to Japan, will also visit Papua New Guinea. He can talk about the quad through these TV media interviews and who is going to be watching these interviews, the general public. So, and, the, you know, oftentimes, you know, many Americans don't really know about what the quad is. They know a lot more about the security or defense related issues. Um, 
if they know about the quad, it may be through that particular lens, but not within the context of the reason why the quad was created in the first place. So I think that's what makes it more meaningful and impactful for leadership to actually institutionalize these summits on a yearly basis. And I think it's also a great idea to also rotate them. So that way, you know, it enables, you know, this year for Prime Minister Albanese to showcase why Australia has a significant standing in the region and that, glo- that uh, globally as well. I, I, I would say that uh, Elena has like perfectly answered the question, but I would like to just add one point that um, I think uh, what makes a difference is the political will uh, and that makes a lot of difference. So when four foreign ministers meet, I I would agree that they, that doesn't carry much of a weight because the traction that gains in media, even in civil society, is not much. But when four leaders comes together, they bring their own agenda, their own political will, and a consistency and strategic vision with them. And that makes a lot of difference for all countries, but also signals to the regional states that, that they are serious about the issues. Uh, and that is how I see uh, yeah, I kind of agree with Avishek there. It's definitely about sort of uh, building a critical mass, you know, a meeting between one country and another is fine and it can definitely deliver results. But the more you get people involved, it almost becomes about, you know, proving a point um, about cooperation and uh, dialogue over domination and conflict. Uh, the Quad, I suppose, represents that kind of ideal of um, you know, a free and open Indo-Pacific. I said the line. Um, but yeah, I think it's it definitely emphasizes that uh, importance, particularly when all the countries come to the table with their opinions and um, ideals being held at a, like a level standard with each other. That's got to be a record for not saying free and open Indo-Pacific until the final few minutes of the event. So I think we've filled the record there. So great work, team. But thank you so much, everyone, for joining tonight's launch of the 8th Latrobe Asia Brief Rest Perspectives on the Quad a massive thanks to our four panellists, Abhishek, Afia, Patrick and Eleanor, and an extended thank you to our fantastic 16 authors of all of the Quadmin papers as well. I can see a couple of you in the audience here, and it's really exciting to see these publications. So those that are joining us tonight at the end of this event, so in the next few days, we'll be able to share with you a recording of the Zoom and as well as a PDF copy of the papers. If you'd like a copy in person, please feel free to email us Asia at sorry, asia at latrobe.edu.au. A massive thanks as well to the US Embassy in Canberra for your ongoing support for Latrobe Asia's Emerging Leaders Program, including on the Quadmin publications. And that's it for tonight. So to find out more about Latrobe Asia, you can follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia. Thank you so much for attending, everyone. Have a fantastic evening or day wherever you are. And thank you so much.